Good morning, Bruce City. Love, I love this time of, time of the week, being able to be together and see each other's faces and sing together, pray together, be silent together, hear about the scriptures together. It's a rich time. If you're new, we've been in the book of Exodus around here at Bruce City Church probably since about fall, since, I don't know, September, October, something like that. I've lost track. And it's been this rich journey through one of the most epic stories I would say the world has ever known. It's a story that has formed and shaped a community and which has turned into a, a nation. And it's a story of God taking that, this community and this people and bringing them and making them his own and make, turning them into a nation and turning them into a people of their own. And it's a story about a journey of heartache and heartbreak and, and longing and, and oppression and injustice in God's hearts about it all. It's a story that's been made famous by Hollywood and all sorts of ways, but it's a story that we find, I think, a lot of, a lot of ourselves right in the midst of this ancient story that's several thousand years old. And as we've been talking through it, we've been reflecting on this story that's formed and shaped this people. And in, as we've gone along, I've just had this desire of like, I would really love a leader from the Jewish community to be able to just talk and ask some questions to about this ancient story that has formed and shaped this people. We Christians borrow this and, and journey with this story. And there's this community and this people that's been shaped by this story, and I want to hear from it. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give this long introduction because I want as much time as I can for conversation with my new friends. So, Bruce City Church, would you help me welcome Rabbi Noah Cherkoff? Ra- Noah, come on up. No, you can just grab the, the mic right there and hold it if you want, or you can, you can do whatever you want. Can you hear me? All right. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be here with you. I wanted to thank uh, Pastor Schmore, and I want to thank Pastor Randy and the, the entire community and the congregation for uh, having me here and the wonderful worship team that has led so beautifully in prayer this morning. It's good to be with all of you. Really fun to have you. Um, I, we could be formal. I could call you Rabbi Noah, but we just call each other Noah and Randy, right? Perfect. So that's all right. okay? That's all right, great. Good. I've been uh, Noah my whole life. Yes. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. um, Noah, could you tell us just a little bit about Congregation Shalom and the, the, where Congregation Shalom is? Just tell us a little bit about the, the, spirit, the faith community that you lead. Sure. Congregation Shalom is about 850 families. Uh, we are in Fox Point, uh, and uh, it is actually the largest Jewish congregation in Wisconsin. Uh, when you think about Judaism, often people think about the different denominations or streams that exist within Judaism, ranging from Orthodox uh, with all of the different Orthodox um, um, sects within there, Conservative Judaism, and Reform Judaism. Reform Judaism is the most liberal among them for the most part, and uh, that's the denomination uh, with which Congregation Shalom uh, exists. And it is a wonderful congregation. We have uh, a significant amount of young people, and we have a significant amount of old people as well. It's really, it's a joy uh, to have a community where there's so much vibrancy and also people from all different demographics. It's really quite wonderful. You, um, 
when we got together, it was, I don't know, maybe three weeks ago, something mm -hmm. like that. Um, and you were just about, you were the next day, I believe, going to go to travel to Israel and um, visit the community there. And just, was that your first time since October 7th being in Israel? Yeah, that was my first time. Okay. Since October 7th, yeah. So we, we, we do Q&Rs. I think I told you this. We do Q&Rs, and I've gotten questions about how do we respond to what's going on in Israel and Gaza and all that. Um, can you just tell us, as someone who's just recently been there, first of all, just tell us how is the community that you visited, how are they, just tell us how they're doing things. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, it is, it is a, every time I go to Israel, it's like a different country. I've been so many times throughout my life. And, and I've you lived, lived there for I a little bit, I lived there, right? yeah, I lived there for a little bit. Um, and, you know, there are different times of hopefulness. There's been times in which um, the conflict felt very far away. Um, this was a time of trauma that I was there. And, and you can definitely sense it in the country itself and the way people are responding. Um, you know, what's heartening being there is that, you know, when people go through trauma, sometimes they sort of keep a sort of a stiff, stiff upper lip. You know, they sort of respond as though everything is normal. Um, the, the feeling in the country is not that. It is not that everything is normal, as, as often is the case uh, in Israel, where they live with conflict almost always. Um, but there seems to be a, a, you know, a coalescing within the community around the idea that they're all, in a sense, engaged in this therapy with each other. People are talking about it. They're understanding uh, the pain that they're experiencing. Um, when you think about the 1,200 who were killed on October 7th, um, it's a very small country. So in that country, there is nobody that wasn't touched in some way, uh, having lost a friend or a child or a parent or someone who's somehow connected. And so when that happens, you, you find that the community is responding in a, in a way that hope is, is heartening that they're coming together. Um, there's right now it's 127 days since October 7th and there's an expression in Israel that this is the 127th day of October 7th people there are still living in the shadow of what happened on that day and it is driving much of the reaction that you see um, in a way it was a relief to me um, that my friends and the family that were there are feeling the pain of that and that they're not blocking it out because when you experience pain, it is one step away from trying to move through it. Um, and so there is a, a, a real sense of coalescing within the community itself. Mm -hmm. You have written, uh, you journaled your way through your, your days in Israel. You were generous enough to share those with me. It's been fascinating um, reading those. I appreciated your your uh, your writing as well, but can you just give us a brief um, something you won't see in the news or hear in the news? Uh, just a little taste of that. So often, you know, the conflict is framed um, as being that this is the Jewish state and the Jewish state is at war um, with their Arab neighbors. And people tend to forget that Israel is a multicultural society. Um, I spent a lot of time in Israel, I'd say a significant amount of time, with the Arab-Israeli community and the Bedouin community, um, who, are, um, who are loyal citizens of the state of Israel. And what was important you know, for us to see, and is probably important for me to share with you because you're not necessarily hearing this in the media, is that the Arab-Israeli community and the Bedouin community are fighting and dying side by side. 
uh, with the Jewish community in Israel. Um, on October 7th, Hamas, which is an Islamic terrorist organization, killed um, scores of people, and it didn't matter to them you know, whether their victims were Jewish or Arab or Bedouin or Muslim. Um, they, they killed everyone that, that they came across that they knew were Israeli citizens. And so those communities are uh, really, even though there's been challenges within Israeli society, as there always are, um, those communities are staying steadfast side by side um, with their, the Jewish community in Israel. Um, and I don't think you hear that quite, as, uh, quite a lot in the, in the media. I think people are framing this as a war that exists between Jews and Arabs. And that's actually couldn't be further from the truth with two million uh, Arab citizens of Israel that are fighting side by side. So that's this huge topic that yeah. I appreciate you kind of giving us this personal, um, you know, intimate taste of what's, what's happening. I don't want to talk all, only about what's happening, you know, in, in Israel and uh, Gaza right now, but I do want to just contextualize this within our conversation about Exodus. So is it okay if we transition yeah, to that? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. thanks for, thanks for ask, answering a few questions about mm -hmm. that. I know Judaism is not a monolith. It's, there's not one way of looking at the scriptures within Judaism. There's different traditions and different ways of engaging with the scriptures. So maybe if you could just answer from your tradition. We're engaging, we, we engage with the scriptures here at Bruce City Church. We, you know, pretty much spend half of our services on, on a weekend engaging with the scriptures and dissecting them That's and, right. and uh, trying to apply them to our lives. What would you say is, uh, is how, how does your tradition engage with the scriptures? How do you read the scriptures? How do you take the scriptures? How do you, just tell us about your relationship and your community's relationship with sure. the scriptures. So, you know, in, in Jewish tradition, we call, well, let's start with the Torah. The Torah being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It really functions like the constitution for the Jewish people, right? So the, everything that we talk about, um, all of the different rules and ethical ideas that we take from the Torah, it has to be consistent. It has to be, in a sense, constitutional. Um, and there's a great deal of creativity there. But once you have a text, right, once you have a text that you look at, and particularly when you look at in Hebrew, for example, um, you realize that there's all different types of interpretations that you can draw from that text. And I'll give you an example. Um, probably you're familiar with how the Bible begins. Most people are, right? In King James, they translate it as um, in the beginning, right? So in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is bereshit, Right? There are no vowels, by the way, in the Torah. It could be bareshit, but it is bereshit. And the way Jews translate that is in a beginning. Right? Now, by the way, if it was bareshit, which it very well could be because there's no vowels, although that's not the traditional Jewish reading of it, um, it makes a difference in the beginning versus in a beginning, those two ideas. And so right away in the Torah, right from the very first words, you can see that there's different possibilities. And so when we're sitting and we're engaging with Torah, we're basically grappling or, in a sense, wrestling with it. And that takes place because we don't actually read the Torah in isolation. We read it in partnership, right? We read it in what's called chavruta or pairs, and we read it in a community. And that means that there's nothing that we enjoy more than debating the text. 
right? I would love to debate with you. Is it in a beginning or in the beginning? What's the difference, right? It's a huge difference. Like the nature of reality is wrapped up in like one possible vowel that's in the Hebrew text. And so when you, when you read the text in the Torah in that way, you are constantly wrestling not only with yourself but with others. And in that engagement that's taking place within the Jewish community, we believe that truth lies somewhere between two people arguing an issue or a point. And so it's, it's that nature of that debate and argument that really gives rise to what Judaism is as a religion, as hmm. a religious system, hmm. right? When you have a constitution, then you have all of the derivative laws, right? Like just in the United States, right? Constitution doesn't tell you what to do when you come to a stop sign, right? But the laws in your society better be constitutional, right? And so those types of discussions, discussing the ethics and the values and the ideals that come from the Torah and trying to extrapolate it into a religious tradition and a peoplehood that we are, that's what makes our relationship with the text itself so um, rich and vibrant. So you, you, within your tradition, within Judaism, you see this, the very beginning as an example, and I'm sure this is just the, the one of just uncountable instances where there's this difference, this, this opportunity for debate. And we, in much of Christendom, we, look at, we would look at that and say, whoa, that's a problem. Like, we got, that's a problem to fix. And we've got to actually, most of us wouldn't even draw attention to it. We just kind of slide right by it. But within Judaism, it sounds like you see that as an opportunity for conversation. Oh, yeah. yeah, there is nothing, I mean, we enjoy the debate greatly. I mean, the, that type of questioning and debating about the text is something that we draw deep spiritual meaning from. Um, and it means in some ways that debate itself is you valuing and honoring the scriptures, would you say? That's right. And so, so in the Orthodox tradition, there's the belief that the written Torah was given by God on Sinai, and that also there was an oral Torah that was passed also given at Sinai, and it has all of the discussions. So Reform Judaism, we don't necessarily believe that way, but we have the texts of our people. And if you look at something called the Talmud, which is sort of uh, the religious teachings that come from around the Torah that have been passed from generation to generation, you, what, you, what you immediately identify is that it's arguing back and forth. A lot of arguments and debates uh, that's found within the Talmud. And, um, and what's interesting about that is that our ancestors at a certain point, much like the Supreme Court arguments that exist today, found it meritorious to preserve the minority positions, right? So there's a majority positions and there are minority positions. And so we draw a great deal of, of meaning, not only in like the ideas that won out, but mm -hmm. also the ideas that didn't win out, you know, to see that our people were really engaged in the discussion. So fun. So one more thing on the scriptures. So you have, you have the, the, the narrative of the scriptures, but then you just hinted at this, the Talmud, the Mishnah. There's these rabbinic writings that are almost kind of a product of that conversation through the centuries. That's right. How, um, what's the relationship to, can you describe, you have, of course, the Torah, the writings, the prophet, but you have the scriptures, you have 
the rabbinic writings, how do, you, how do those interact with each other and how do you as, a, how do you as a, a Jewish man or a community interact with those things? It's a great question. It is very much like the framing of the United States, right? You have the, you have the Constitution at the center, that's the Torah for us. And then you have all of the different writings where you've got constitutional amendments, and you have, um, I mean, I'm a new citizen, so hopefully I'm getting this right. You're from and Toronto I'm from Toronto, right? yeah, yeah, born and raised. Um, but you, and then you have also, you know, the Supreme Court arguments, you have everything that, and the, basically the laws of the states. Um, the Jewish community sort of functions that way, and depending on the degree to which you are within the system, or use the system within, the, within that tradition as well, um, that sort of defines the way you navigate the world. So within the Orthodox community, those majority opinions in the Talmud, they end up being you know, the word of God. Mm -hmm. For Reformed Jews, for example, we take a look at the teachings that are in the Talmud and we look at the teach, rabbinic teachings and we even look at the Torah and we say, okay, tradition gets a vote in our life, but not a veto which means that we also, in Reform Judaism, have personal autonomy mm. to use our best judgment, mm. our best ideas with our modern world, to look at the, the tradition and say, well, that speaks to me now, maybe it'll speak to, or that will speak to me later. We have the ability to say, maybe that's a religious practice that we're gonna say, not yet. We're not gonna practice it that way yet, or not at all. We, uh, we have that, that personal autonomy when interacting with our religious tradition. Brilliant, thank you. I hope we're, we're listening and kind of be, being able to perceive differences and maybe nuances to the way that this tradition interacts with the scriptures, the way we've interaction, interacted with the scriptures and how that, what that speaks to the way we interact with this story, right? Yep. Um, and, hold, and if you've got questions, hold on to those questions, they're really important. You know, I, and we lo I love questions. Every time I drop my kids off in the morning, I say, make good choices, ask good questions, try hard. If you try hard, you're going to make some mistakes, but that's okay. So long as you learn from them, be kind, be safe, remember that I love you. Every morning, now ask my kids what I say to them in the morning, and they'll be like, I don't remember. <laughs> every morning, every morning. So, yeah. I was going to say, I lost you after the third line. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I was also going to say, I want to steal what you say, because oh, yeah. that's brilliant. Um, so from the scriptures to just the, um, the spirituality of Judaism. I mean, in many ways, you know, uh, the Judaism was born in this, I, this story of Jacob wrestling with God mm -hmm. in some ways, would you say? Mm -hmm. um, Jacob's given a new name. The, this tradition born out of a struggle with the divine, born out of wrestling with the divine, and in some ways that's kind of shaped and formed mm -hmm. the Jewish tradition. Can you, can you speak to just how much yeah. of your tradition and also spirituality is reflected out of that encounter and that story. Yeah, actually, you know, the, the rabbis point to Abraham and they point to that wrestling because they talk about what was it that merited, uh, what that Abraham merited to become the first Hebrew, right? Because he was really, as soon as he crossed the Tigris and Euphrates River on his way to the land of Canaan, he became the first Ivri, which means stranger, someone from another place. There's a lot of terms that people know Jews as. Hebrew is one of them. Um, and so what merited was his willingness to sort of debate God about the issue of Saddam, for example. You know, if you have, you know, he, he, there's this debate about the destruction of Saddam, and Abraham is sort of trying to talk God down a little bit from, from his position. 
And, you know, our rabbis contrast that with Noah, my, my spiritual namesake. And Noah is not viewed as being particularly great, right? In the Torah, it says Noah was righteous in his generation. That's what it says in the Torah. And they say, the rabbis go, in his generation, right? <laughs> like, meaning it wasn't so great because when he was confronted with the idea that God was going to destroy the world, you know, Noah said, Look, okay, I'll build a boat, right? <laughs> Abraham argued. Abraham was willing to go to bat against the divine, Interesting. right, in order to, to, for an outcome. And because we believe that that's what God desires. And we believe that God desires a partner, right? When you think about, you know, God, God's experience, you know, in the Jewish tradition, we, we say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, Adonai is our God, Adonai is one. And if you follow the singers of the 70s, the Shema, you know, right? that's the Shema. One is the loneliest number, right? So we believe that God needs, a, needs us to be in partnership. And partnership doesn't mean just, you know, to submit, hmm. right? Hmm. And so that moment of the wrestling with the divine, with Jacob, in which Jacob becomes Israel, becomes the paradigm, right? We're God wrestlers. We wrestle with God. Um, and that also is a paradigm uh, for marriage. Hmm. Uh, it, I, I'd say even a healthy marriage is one in which there's a certain degree of wrestling and um, working together because it's a paradigm of partnership. In your study of the Exodus, you're going to come to the moment of the Ten Commandments, right? The giving of the law on Mount Sinai. For the Jewish people, we view that as the moment of symbolic marriage between our people and God, hmm. right? And so when you're, and by the way, the later prophets, right? The later prophets will, will frame, yes. you know, the, the relationship, not in the best of terms, uh, between Israel and God as a marriage, and so that marriage within itself, that, that means that there's a tension. There's inherent tension in, in marriage, and there is an inherent partnership. And so that partnership demands a, a certain degree of wrestling. And if you look at all of the, the leaders within the Jewish community, particularly in the story of Exodus, Moses is willing to engage in that type of marriage relationship with God. They mm -hmm. fight like a married couple. Mm -hmm. You even see moments, right? Mo mm -hmm. Moses standing on the hill after, you know, the, the people defy God again. And Moses gets upset and points his finger to the, the sky and says, am I the nursemate of these people? Which is an accusation saying like, no, God, you're the nursemate of this mm -hmm. people. Do your job, mm -hmm. right? This is a conflict that exists. And that is also something that we believe God demands of us and wants of us is to be God wrestlers. Hmm. I want to go further down that road, but man, we <laughs> don't have time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, let's... We let's, can talk about it another time. Yes, it's absolutely, and I'll just make everyone jealous. We'll yeah. probably have to have you back, Noah. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of Exodus in particular, can mm -hmm. you just... Um, can you frame up for us a little bit of what the story of Exodus means to the Jewish people? Um, how has it shaped the Jewish people, and how do you see it? How do you, we? Yeah, just take well, us into that world. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. You know, I, I don't know if any of you had had the opportunity maybe to be invited into a Jewish home for a Passover seder. Has anybody ever? been to a Passover Seder. So those of you who know, um, know that what, what's happening in a Passover Seder is actually designed around our children, 
right? It begins with four questions, yep. right? That children are supposed to ask. By the way, it doesn't have to be a particular four questions. The rabbis just said, set your table in such a way the kids would come downstairs and they'd ask you, oh, what's different about this night from all other nights, right? They, they wanted to set the scene. And the idea is to try to teach the Exodus from generation to generation, not as though it was history, but as though this happened to us, hmm. right? So when I'm telling the story to my kids, I am framing it in the perspective, we are sitting here today to talk about what God did for me when I was a slave in Egypt, right? It is the idea of putting ourselves into the shoes of our ancestors and experiencing it as they did. And that means that when we're retelling this story each and every year, we're doing it from the perspective of, yes, we were once slaves and now we are free. And therefore, we are grateful to God. And what the hope is, I believe, is that that turns us back into the world to be more empathetic about the, the restrictions that exist in our world and inspire us to make a world that is more free for all people. And so that idea of internalizing the oppression of Egypt and then reaching freedom is one that should speak to the core of who we are and what our purpose is. And so that is something that's been passed generationally, this idea, um, but also is at the root of much of the ethics that stand within the Jewish tradition. Is about, and we find that that has made its way into Christian theology uh, with a particular term, which is liberation theology, yep. right? But for, for Jews, that's inherent within the... Liberation within, theology is just theology for Jewish people, would you say? I, I, th I think to a, pers uh, a, a certain degree, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so as we began this book, I kind of introduced it and talked about the number of ways we can look at the book in the way that um, even in our tradition, the way some people see it. Some people, there's, you can see it as just 100% literal. This happened exactly the way it's, it's written, and of course it, it did. There's a, on the opposite end, there's some who think that it's just complete myth and that we have lots of, to learn, but it, it didn't really happen. And then right in the middle, there's uh, many scholars who say something happened, but probably not on the grand scope that it, that it says with this many people, or, but something happened. But it's, a, it's the theological history, the theological things that we can pull from it is what the story's primarily about. That's the way we've been encountering the, the, the book of Exodus. Can you just tell us what, what is your perspective on that? You know, with archaeologists say, uh, it couldn't have happened this way, or it doesn't seem like this many people, or maybe I'm sure some Orthodox Jews think it happened exactly the same way, and there's some Jewish people who... Can you just tell us where you sure. land and what's the options so, for, within Judaism? So this is my perspective, and it's Thank somewhat you. radical within the Jewish world, so I want to just put that out there. Because, you know, if you talk to Orthodox Jews, they'll be like, yeah, it is literal, this happened. Um, as much as, as anyone can look at the Hebrew in a literal way, which is very hard to do. Um, you know... Uh, can you... Pause for a second. Why do you say it's really hard to look at the Hebrew in a literal way? Well, just like from what we talked about with the idea of breishit, you know, in the yes. beginning, in the okay. beginning, the Hebrew words dictate different ideas. So there's a reason why there's so much commentary written about the Torah from a Jewish perspective, because commentators are looking at the Hebrew grammar and they're looking at inconsistencies and they're trying to 
you know, make it make sense yeah. and interpret right. it. So it's a little different if you are approaching the Torah in translation where someone's made the decisions for you mm -hmm. as to what the translation will be. When you look at it in its raw form, you're the one that has to start looking at it in different ways. Got so it. Jews, it's very hard to be literal, even in the most fundamentalist aspect of the tradition. Perfect. Um, for, for me, I look at the Torah and I look at the story of the Exodus as this is the story of my people and this is the writing of my people about a moment in time. Now, I place that moment of writing much later than most people and there's, there's you know, I, I don't know how familiar you are with um, the academic study of Torah. There's like these theories, a source uh, critical theory, like mm -hmm. that there's the J writer, the E writer, the P writer, the D writer. That's my, my, I would land there, yeah. Okay, so I actually think the R writer is the most important, which is the redactor, the okay. person that edited it all together at the very end. And many academics source the moment of editing to the experience of the Jews when they were being carried into Babylon, mm -hmm. right? Now, that means that much of what we think of as the Torah today might have been brought together and redacted during the Babylonian exile and the ultimate return of the Judean people to Judea. Mm -hmm. And like our world today, when we want to make sense of our current reality, we often look into the past. And I'll give you an example that I mentioned to you before. When Barack Obama was elected president for the first time, Steven Spielberg wrote, um, I, I believe he wrote and created the movie Lincoln. And he did that not just because that was a moment, just let's look at Lincoln, but he was looking at the modern world through the spectrum of a historical event, which was you know, the, the Lincoln and the emancipation of the slaves in America. And so they, they created a moment in which they were talking about the present day through the past. I believe that the redactor was doing the same was exploring the, the challenges of the Babylonian exile through a past event, which was the Exodus event. Now, whether that actually happened or not, you know, I don't know whether it makes as much of a difference. Yep. I have faith, I believe it did, um, because I believe there was an oral tradition that was passed on before it was written down. And the evidence that I have for that um, is actually comes from Deuteronomy 23. Uh, I think verse 13, I think. Um, Deuteronomy 23 is, um, speaks about what you do with a runaway slave. Um, and by the way, like, this is, comes down to archaeology, right? Mm -hmm. There's no archaeological evidence for a group the size that's being described in the Torah Correct. moving through the wilderness of Sinai. There's no evidence of it at all. Um, but this text itself is so interesting in the context of what archaeologists discovered in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, they discovered what's called suzerain treaties, right? These treaties that existed between large states and vassal states. And in every single treaty that they found, that what, what would you assume the treaty says you're supposed to do if you find another nation's runaway slave in your territory? What do you think you would do? keep them as slaves. Well, you would return them as okay. slaves, right? right? You return them to their slaveholder. That was what the ancient Near East dictated. Okay. But Deuteronomy 23 says that if there is a slave that it makes it to, to Judean or Israelite territory, what you're supposed to do is to harbor that slave and bring them into your community. 
and to free them. Now that is that difference. I don't like. How can one explain that difference, right? Other than there must have been an experience, some form of experience mm -hmm. that our people had, that dictated that they should be empathetic to a runaway slave. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think is because we have a nation that was built as of runaway slaves. Mm -hmm. So we would then have empathy for others. And that for me, I know it seems strange that a law or a rule would be the proof of my faith, but it is. Mm. It, is it is there because there is nothing like it in the ancient Near East. So whether or not it happened exactly the way it says it do, did, it shaped and molded and transformed the people to, to live in a different way in the world that they find themselves in. That's right. It's our family story. Yes. It might be a big fish story, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. still our story. Yeah. Right? And yeah. we draw inspiration, a great deal of inspiration from it. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, got another softball question for you. Um, we're... We've, we've worked our way now through the, the narrative of the plagues, mm -hmm. and um, all of us learned it in Sunday school or in, what do you call Sunday school? Uh, Sunday school. All right, perfect. <laughs> we borrow some stuff from, from, from our neighbors, too. Perfect. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. You got me out of Sunday school, by the way, this morning. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. Not my kids, though. They're there. You're welcome, I guess, maybe. <laughs> yeah, thank I you. Um, so we, we encounter these stories, and in, in, in many ways it's beautiful because we can kind of have our spirituality and theology shaped by some of these stories, but at the same time, some of these stories are kind of, we don't, we pass by the, the horrific nature of some of them, right? Mm -hmm. the, the painful realities that we find in some of these, and the 10th plague, obviously, is the, the, the plague of the firstborn, mm -hmm. where basically, if you read the text straight, it's that God is responsible for killing all sorts of children yeah. in, in Egypt. Then you move on, and there's uh, the, you know, Praise what we just sang, you turn seas into highways, you know, um, and that's great for one half of the people in the story, the other half it's really not great for. You go on and there's conquest narratives and violence and uh, violence and, and death and killing kind of seems like sanctioned by God. Mm -hmm. For Christians or for Jew the Jewish people, that's, this is, I think it's a problem. I hope it's deeply uncomfortable. Thank you. So how do you, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a huge statement to make that not every faith leader would make. That's a really important thing to say. That's why I say thank you. How do you process those, um, those parts of the story, Noah? So I'm not the first to raise questions about it. Mm -hmm. you know, so, so I'm going to explain something called Midrash. Midrash is rabbinic interpretation, often coming from the first few centuries of the Common Era and sometimes preceding it as well. And there's this beautiful midrash that takes place, uh, you know, right around the Song of the Sea. After, you know, the, the Egyptians have drowned in their chariots and, you know, Moses and Miriam and the children are singing their song. And then the midrash says, and all the angels on high burst into song as well. And then there was a really interesting comment where God actually sh basically shushes the angels. It says, how dare you sing? Right? Hmm. It's so interesting that the Israelites are allowed to sing, right? Their experience was slavery and now it's redemption at the other side of that sea. But, the, but God says, how dare you sing? Don't you realize my children are drowning? Wow. Right? And this is God basically 
telling the, the holy chorus, the angels on high, to be silent because God is struggling, you know, with this moment as well, right? And so, now, you might say in the text itself, okay, so, so God had a conscience, but that's, I don't, don't think that that's what we should be drawing from this. I think what that tells you is that through all of the centuries, human beings, when interpreting and discussing this text, that they're struggling with that too. Now, if I had to guess, I would look at the text on its own terms for a moment and just say, look, my ancient people are writing about their reflections of God. This is a difference between Reformed Judaism and Orthodox Judaism, and I want to just be clear. Orthodox Judaism believes that the Torah, right, in its complete form, the five books of Moses, reflects God's search for humanity, right? It is God searching for humanity by giving us the Torah. Reformed Judaism believes that the Torah is, and the, the, again, Torah meaning the five books of Moses and beyond, that the Torah reflects humanity's search for God. It is the text of our ancestors who are thinking about a world in which God exists. And one God, too, which was really revolutionary. Mm -hmm. It's not about sort of a polytheistic world for the first time. It is about what does it mean to live in a world with one God? Yes. And the world that they see is filled with slavery and war and challenges, difficult things happening to good people, you know, all of these things. And therefore, the text of the tradition reflects sort of the brutish realities of the world in which they're living. Now, does that mean, you know, God is behaving in a way that's unethical? That's, that's the debate that exists within, within our tradition and the debate that, that we constantly have. I'll give you another example of it. Um, there's a moment in the plagues. So you're studying the plagues now, right? We Would, just finished. You just finished? Okay. Yeah. So I got two favorites, okay, in, yes. in there. All right. First is that it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, mm -hmm. right? How do you deal with, how do you, how do you put guilt on Pharaoh for example, for behavior, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's like it, Pharaoh becomes a puppet, mm -hmm. right? So Maimonides, who is a great you know, religious thinker mm -hmm. of uh, the medieval period in Judaism, basically described addiction. He hmm. said, it's like an addict, hmm. right? At first, an addict engages in a behavior and they still have a certain level of control. But then as you move along the addiction, then the, your choices in addiction narrow over time to a point in which your heart might be hardened to any type of change that might exist. So our ancestors found ways of interpreting. Here's the other uh, note that I love from, um, from, the, from the plagues. The ninth plague um, the rabbis interpret it not to be that it was like darkness in a literal sense, but that the kind of darkness where a, a sibling couldn't see that the face of the other was their sibling, right? There's this beautiful uh, story from tradition that says, you know, a rabbi was asking his students, how do you know when to say the morning prayers? And, and by the way, the, you say morning prayers when you see amount of, um, a certain amount of light, and, you know, they said, well, it's when you can differentiate the tops of the treetops from the sky above. And he's like, no, that's not how you know. 
And then another one says, well, it's when you can tell like the, the tops of the houses from the earth below. That's how you know when it's time to say the morning prayers or the morning has begun. Um, and he goes, no, that's not it. And he says, well, it's when you look at the animals in the field and you can differentiate between the animals in the field, as another student said. And the rabbi was becoming even more increasingly upset. And he says, no, that's not how you know when morning has begun. He says, you know, all of you are wrong. You know when morning has begun, when you can see the face of, your, of the person in the field and you know that they're your brother, right? So the plague, like these plagues have been interpreted as being less, I, I would say, sent by God but in some ways, but also in explaining the human condition. If you keep going, Noah, they're going to ask for you to preach this series and not me. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. You're amazing. You're amazing, Pastor. Um, We've talked. He's allowing me to shine. Get out of here. We've, so I know it's getting late. If you've got to leave, friends, go ahead. I've got two more questions, and I'm going to ask them. Um, you should never ask a rabbi a short question. Right. Right? We'll go on and on. There's a joke about a rabbi yeah. and a pastor walking too far. Um, <laughs> two more questions. Very much more simple. Um, what is your favorite portion or story within the story of Exodus? Do you have a favorite? Have you had something that you've latched onto that you has I mean, extra meaning? It's sort of a, there's two I want to share with you. And it's not about the text as it is, but about its reinterpretation. So okay. um, the first um, is which you've studied already, which is the moment in which uh, Moses encounters the burning bush, right? And there's a couple of things that you should notice, actually, that's in the Hebrew. It's kind of hard to, to see in the English, although it sort of comes through in the translation. You know Moses was slow of speech, right? Mm -hmm. he, he, he expressed that to God. But there's a, an idea about why Moses was chosen. Moses was sh a shepherd, by the way, which in the Hebrew word is roe, which means one who sees. Also, the word for prophet, another word for prophet is a seer. In the descriptions that Moses, he turns aside and he sees the burning bush, and then God sees that Moses sees the burning bush, there's wordplay going on about what makes Moses so unique to this position. And I believe it's a matter of his perspective. Hmm. Moses is from two worlds, never really belonging to either one. Yes. And he's able to view you know, society in a way that others can't because he's got a unique perspective, a unique, unique view. And so this reiterating the word see, 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 this vision is so important to the text. And the rabbis actually wrote a midrash that said that the burning bush was always burning and people used to walk by it all the time. Mm -hmm. What made Moses different was that he actually was sensitive enough to see something different and he turned aside to go look. That'll preach. Right? Yeah. And that, yeah, that'll preach, exactly. Yeah. And the other one is that with the parting of the sea, the rabbis actually, I tell this story to the kids all the time in Sunday school, it's my favorite, is that Moses had been told to lift his staff and that the sea would part. And Moses lifts his staff, and you know what happened? Nothing happened. Hmm. This is the, an ancient midrash for now kids. And then Moses again, you know, he figures, I'm going to lift my staff and the sea will part and lifts his staff and nothing happens. And the Israelites standing on the shore of the sea are becoming panicked. They're looking back. They see Egypt and the chariots coming and they don't know what to do. All until one man whose name is Nachshon. Nachshon takes a step into the water 
and the water comes up to his ankles. He takes a step in the water, another one, the water comes up to his knees. He takes another step into the water, comes up to his thighs, another comes up to his shoulders, takes another one, the water is lapping upon his ears, and as the Israelites are standing there and Nachshon plunges himself into the water, only then does the sea part. And what I love about this rabbinic story is the idea that, in a sense, we can't necessarily be passive participants in expectations of miracles to take place. Mm -hmm. That if we want to get to the other side of whatever is standing in front of us, that we have a responsibility, too, to take those steps towards the other side, no matter what. And that is a beautiful idea. And I think it's an idea that for truly for the Jewish people has been a sustaining one mm -hmm. because, you know, we, we've waited for miracles in the past yes. and it hasn't always gone so mm -hmm. well for us. Mm -hmm. Thank yeah. you. Last question. Um, we're going to be in the book of Exodus for a pretty long time. Mm -hmm. um, would you, what, do you have any encouragements for us as we navigate through this, this crazy, complex, beautiful, mm -hmm. uh, chaotic story? Yeah. I, I mean, first off, the, the story of the journey from slavery to freedom is one that belongs to all of us. And, this, and there's some clues even in the words of its deeper meaning. Um, Egypt wasn't called Egypt in Hebrew, it's called Mitzrayim, which means the narrow places, hmm. right? And that makes sense because it was the fertile um, uh, Nile yeah. crescent in which um, this all takes place and that's why it's referred to as the narrow places. But, when you think about the story of degradation to freedom, it is a story of moving from narrow places where your choices are restricted to moving to freedom in which you then have the opportunity to have a vast number of choices that exist in the world. It's not only a story about uh, a nation, and certainly for us it is the, the moment in which we move from being a family to being a people, mm -hmm. but it is also a deeply personal story that everyone, I think, can resonate with. When you look back at your life and you think about your life and the journey that you're on, you're moving, no matter, I, I think it's probably fair to say that most of us are moving from narrow places with a hope of a promised future that is expansive and big. Mm -hmm. And whether it's your own experience or the experience that you want for someone else or for another people, that can be a very guiding story, this idea of moving from narrow places to places of freedom. Mm -hmm. So I would, I, would, I would say explore the text on its own terms. Also explore the text in what it's in dialogue with, which it's in dialogue with a past right? It's in dialogue with the ancient traditions that existed before it. Um, and also, at, certainly in a Christian setting, it is, it's good and healthy for you to examine it through the context of your religious faith as well. But I would do all three. Think Perfect. about how it speaks to you personally. Thank you. Worship team, can you please come up so we can end our time in one more song? Um, Rabbi Noah, would you uh, give us I said this a couple of weeks ago. I, I spoke it over as a benediction. Would you do the same thing, the high priestly prayer from number six sure. that Aaron, God tells Aaron to, to speak? Could you do the Hebrew? And then could you also translate it into yours? I like sure. your translation better than what we find oh, in my NIV you. Bible. So All right. My, you Once, my if you're able, friends, let's stand. So I'm going to receive this blessing. So I'm going to speak the Hebrew that was actually found on archaeological remains and sits in the in the Museum of Israel, which Amen. is pretty extraordinary. Over 3,000 years old. 
Yivarechacha Adonai v'yishmarecha. May God bless you and keep you. Ya'er Adonai panavilecha v'yichunecha. May God's countenance shine upon you and through you. Yisa Adonai panavilecha v'yasem lecha shalom. May God always smile upon you and bless you with God's choicest of blessings, the blessing of shalom, the blessing of peace. Amen. Amen. Bree City Church, let's thank Rabbi Noah Cherkov for joining us.